0: You're listening to Remote Possibilities, a podcast on the intersection of technology, society, and education, brought to you by MarketScale. Now here's your host, Kevin Hogan. Okay, hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Remote Possibilities, the podcast that explores the promise and perils of distance learning. I'm your host, Kevin Hogan, and I'm glad you found us. With me today is Elliot Levine, one of the Charter EdTech 100 top influencers. Elliot is a 25 year veteran in academia, including as a K-12 district administrator, an adjunct professor, distinguished technologist, and now chief academic officer. And Elliot, at the risk of dating ourselves, I recall one of our first conversations being about how cool our new iPhones were. Do you remember that? I
1: never had an iPhone, I worked for HP. Ah. That's right. Maybe it was about how cool my iPhone was. That probably was because at the time it was was probably my my Palm Pre Plus or something like that.
0: (laughs) But so most recently uh, our conversations have been around uh, recent blog posts that you put up, Elliot. Maybe you could talk a little bit. I could go on with your bio for a half hour. No, 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 no. Everybody be (laughs)
1: asleep unless this is now a podcast for insomniacs or something. But
0: uh, unfortunately, we all know what the topic needs to be these days. Um, And you recently posted uh, a pretty provocative uh, post uh, up on LinkedIn talking about some hard questions that the ed tech community needs to ask itself. Uh, And part of that involved looking at new models uh, of instruction uh, that involve blended learning. Talk a little bit about your experience um, with that project, uh, now defunct, and then we can get into a little bit of the particulars.
1: Sure. You know, when I was with HP, we did a number of different um, educational initiatives, and one that I took part in for a couple of years was a virtual telepresence classroom studio. How could we create that hybrid learning environment where a professor doesn't necessarily have to go all the way to campus to teach a course, or we could recruit students anywhere or faculty anywhere. The technology was phenomenal. It was creating this whole telepresence system for barely like $1,000 a month. And when you look at how much online program managers um, like 2U and other companies, what they charge for 60, 70% of tuition dollars, this was a very affordable option. And despite the technology being great, the culture of universities wasn't open to it. You know, there was still this belief that, you know, brick and mortar learning experience was the only way to do it. So culturally, institutions weren't ready. And that program was sunset just back in fall of this year. And Interestingly enough, one of those universities was reaching out to try to find out, hey, is there a way we could get it now? And we're like, sorry, that, <laughs> I, I'm no longer there. And you know, that's, yeah, you're right. That ship did sail. And don't get me wrong, Kevin, I'm a huge proponent, and I'm the biggest cheerleader for education. But sometimes friends need to be honest with friends. And we need to really start rethinking what we're doing right now or we're on the verge of seeing so many institutions facing extinction. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, you see the, the higher ed, uh, it's almost like a, um, watching a ticker, seeing what schools decide they're going to open and which ones are going to close. Uh, I saw Cambridge university, uh, in the UK has decided they will suspend any lectures in person but may continue to have small group gatherings. So that's an example of a, of, a, of a hybrid, right? The California state systems say they aren't gonna open until at least January. Um,
1: for many of these universities, it's, it's a matter of life or death, right? Yeah, and, and in fact, I think a number, well, a number of the public institutions and well-regarded institutions have had the, the luxury, if you will, to say, well, we are gonna go to a virtual model for the fall. Most private universities, especially smaller private liberal arts colleges, they don't have that financial luxury. They're still sitting here waiting for students to enroll and pay tuition for next year. And the thought of spending $50,000 for a Zoom education is not sitting well in the minds of a lot of students or the parents who are ultimately footing that bill. And, you know, if you recall back in 2013, Clayton Christensen had predicted that by 2030, upwards of half of colleges and universities in this country would be bankrupt. And I used to think that was absolutely insane. You know, I I certainly saw the opportunity for some to do acquisition, others to be acquired, and some to just become irrelevant, kind of following, you know, the, the Lee Iacocca lead, follow, or get out of the way mantra. But, you know, again, since Clayton's passing, it's almost like everything he predicted, it's happening, but it's now just happening at a very escalated pace. Moody's already shows that there's a great number of universities that are in financial distress. And if you look at the numbers, just simply not being able to rely upon the gross profit related to room and board... That's enough to put most universities into acute financial distress, which is why furloughs, layoffs, and reductions of programs are going to become more of the norm in this country over the next 12 months, even if things start to return to what people believe and perceive as normal.
0: So let's dust off that program uh, and go into some particulars here. Are, Are there ways in which you see higher ed institutions being able to you know, they started in March. Uh, we did, they did a crash course in distance learning. Um, anecdotally, I haven't seen any like data come out yet on on learning loss, but um, I think some programs succeeded. I think at the higher ed end of things, that that transition was probably easier, definitely easier than say primary school children,
1: right? I mean, in, in terms of education continuing. Yeah, because I think what you're hitting upon right there is the distinction that we often see in education. A lot of times, educators love to talk about student engagement. And engagement is nothing more than bringing home a puppy. You've got children entertained, and they seem interested at the moment, and then they lose interest. Versus in a university setting, what you're hoping for, for the most part, is that students have a personal stake and they're invested in their learning. And they're not going to let obstacles and barriers get in the way. They're going to try to continue their studies to the best of their abilities. And we've seen the results in K 12 when school systems have reported, particularly large urban districts, upwards of 25% of students simply have checked out. They're not attending online classes. And even if schools, you know, went out and got technology into the hands of young people and got hotspots in front of them. There were still personal and social issues that were impacting those young people that they didn't have time or priority to place around their instruction. Plus, let's look at the teachers. We pat ourselves on the back because we got, you know, laptops or Chromebooks out to all of our faculty and we showed them how to use Google Classroom or Hangouts or Google Meets or Zoom. Or teams, whatever the course was, but did we really teach them how to teach in remote learning environments? And are we doing that right now? And so many of these faculty are struggling because they weren't given the tools or the training to succeed. And so many of them are frustrated because they want to. If we really want to have remote learning be successful come the fall, we need to set up true home telepresence studios. And this doesn't have to be that much more sophisticated than they've already got. Add a better webcam, a microphone, and maybe get an interactive flat panel on, on a free rolling stand so that select teachers can set up remote studios in their homes to deliver more dynamic instruction. You know, some of the technology today on those panels, you know, Promethean and others, they, the, teachers and students can still share and show content. So I can have students log in and give them the code and I can now share their screen with all the students remotely watching on the webcam. Even here, just before this all started, I set up a Lightboard studio in my garage so that I could still continue to produce videos, instructional videos that we could post online and for our own teams for training.
0: Right, right. Well, what specific recommendations then for, uh, I mean, I, I'll have to g- come back at you a little bit and say that's easier said than done, right? For the average uh, teacher to set up a home studio, I mean, maybe they don't have a garage. <laughs> <No>. <laughs>
1: or uh- They may not have a grudge. They could be in a studio apartment with four other people. I mean, heck, just to record this podcast, I had to kick my wife out of here who has a client call, and trust me, that's not gonna go over very well. (laughs) Right. No, and we're not gonna be able to do it for every teacher. But let's say I'm at a high school and I've got 10 teachers who teach geometry um, or algebra too. Well, I don't have the time or the budget to give all 10 teachers that technology. But let's select one or two rock star teachers who can be that front-facing, who have the space, the willingness to be creative like that. And let's re you know, let's reassign and have the other teachers in more of a supportive role. I'm not suggesting one is more important than the other, but this is how you take on a more, you know, comprehensive team approach to instructing children because we need to address the lecture as well as the, hand on, the hands-on individualized support that's needed.
0: Right. So you suggested some of those, and that's kind of a traditional higher ed model, right? You have the professor give the lecture, and then the TAs will follow up with small group discussion and, and kind of do some of the nitty gritty that way. And you suggested in your blog post that that is uh, a model that you would suggest uh,
1: be found in, in K-12 now. It, it, it can be. And see, this is where we're going to be getting into really shaky ground, because some may look at it, just as you said, TAs, those are graduate level assistants. They're not full-blown professors. So in K-12, are we going to sit back and say, hey, we're going to only have two really superior teachers, and then we're going to use teacher aides or assistants or student teachers to do the rest? These are questions that are gonna be asked, and I'm not suggesting one way is right or wrong, but it certainly could be rather disruptive to our concepts of tenure, teacher assignments, uh, teacher to student ratios in K-12, things that we have become really, you know, holding on. But while they work in a brick and mortar environment, for the time being, they're not working. So how do we change it to work to our advantage? So maybe we don't call them TAs, but we just look at it as one to many and one to one faculty. So we don't diminish the value that they bring to the table, but ways in which they can leverage their expertise to give the best results to students. Right, right.
0: One one um, thing that I've discovered over the past couple of weeks, I have three beta testers here. One's a, so- a freshman in college, one's a sophomore in high school, and one's about to go into high school. And each have had a different dynamic uh, with their teachers. But I've discovered for the first time, I have a dynamic with their teachers that I really didn't have before with the traditional setup. Um, We've had one-to-one counseling sessions uh, for college, for for my middle guy. Uh, I've had one-to-ones with uh, teachers. So, I mean, the parent-teacher conference has kind of been broken up into a hundred little bits, right? I mean, is, is that another potential benefit that may come out of all this
1: madness? I I think so. You know, if you look at a lot of institutions right now, I I think in some tokens, the, the larger institutions have additional staff and resources, so they feel that they can adapt more quickly. But I've actually found the smaller institutions to be more nimble to be able to change. And much of it is occurring at a grassroots level, as you're pointing out. I've had faculty members from K-12, from higher ed, reach out to me with questions over the last two months. And where we usually come back to is that they've got the basics down. Now they're really trying to finesse. But this lends to kind of the, the question about competition in higher education, because how are brick and mortar institutions positioned to compete for next year? A number of students are looking at, you know, tabling enrollment into certain schools for 6 months or a year until this passes over. And at the same token, they you know, where are they looking? Well, A, they're looking at state university systems and public institutions because if they're going to receive online instruction anyhow, they might as well pay less for it. Then you have others that are looking at University of Phoenix, um, Southern New Hampshire University, UMass Online, institutions that have over seventy-five thousand online students already, they have the infrastructure, the best practices, the pedagogy is in place to support students more effectively. Because right now, you know, freshmen are already dealing with a culture shock going into college. And this online instruction, if you have faculty that really haven't adapted their curriculum to address it, these are students who are not gonna be as successful as they could be.
0: Well, I mean, it's, it's gonna be interesting to see. Um, there, there really do seem to be two different horizons, right? There's the short term, which is we're still in a kind of a, a triage mode. Uh, and then there's the long term, where we maybe have the potential to see some, some positives about this. Um, do you Can you break down your recommendations in a, in a short-term versus a long-term context?
1: Sure. You know, for the last several years, if you look at ed tech investments, whether it's in K-12 or high ed, uh, but particularly in K-12, school districts are spending a lot on devices and the latest in reading and math applications. And if you look to try to measure what sort of results we were getting – most school district leaders will talk to you anecdotally because they don't necessarily have data points and statistics to back up the claims. And this has been a challenge. All of that has been magnified fivefold in the last two months because reliant on ed tech has been greater than it ever has before. And now more than ever, schools need tools that are actually showing how much time students are spending in front of technology, what applications are they actually in front of, and they just can't have it open running in the background. Are they actually working on it? You know, I I sit on the board of a startup called Paper Basket, and one of the things that we've seen, uh, depending on the district, we have seen usage on core subject areas like math, ELA, science, we see usage skyrocketing in some districts and in others we've actually watched it go over a cliff that usage is dropping students have simply walked away and we can tell the difference with the software because it's measuring what's front facing to the student so we know the difference if you know netflix is front facing or is that ela system front facing and yes you know Disney Plus, Hulu, Netflix, Spotify, the usage has gone up. Kids are home and bored. That's okay. But if they're not also spending time on instruction, A, it means accountability isn't there. But B, the schools don't have a mechanism to actually track and know what's happening. And if there was one policy change, I think that has really led to this kind of senioritis amongst all grade levels. Most schools introduced and publicized policies that said, well, for the fourth quarter, a child can't receive a grade lower than the third quarter. Now, look, as a matter of policy, I understand it. But to have promoted it just was an invitation for every child to slack off. And it became increasingly hard for parents to push children because the argument that their kids were giving them was, Well, why do I have to put in an effort if I'm already guaranteed at least what I got last quarter? I'm good with the running average I've got. So that, I think, in retrospect, was probably not the best move we could have made as far as promoting that to parents, because that just was the invitation to just give up. We won't have that luxury for next school year. Well, and the other thing is, as a parent,
0: as I'm looking at this and doing research and trying to find programs that are going to just continue through the summer. um, Because you already had this kind of learning loss because of this. Now you're going to make it even worse by just not having any sort of programming for students over the summer at all? I mean, why not just kind of continue on and at least try to, you know, stop the bleeding?
1: No, and you know what? You're seeing a number of school districts already looking at those models. Do we start bringing them back earlier? Universities are planning to cancel their fall breaks because they want to try to get time in as much as possible, possibly even, if necessary, end the semester early around Thanksgiving if they have to. But what schools should be looking at this summer, in my opinion— is not just how do I deliver the instruction more effectively to my students, but how do I equip my parents with the tools to be successful? So if I were an educator right now in a school district, the first thing I'd be building is a parent academy. It's bad enough when your little one comes home to you with, you know, here's my math homework, help me. So I do it the way I was taught all those years, only to find out that I was wrong. Didn't know that, but apparently I've been doing math completely the wrong way. That explains my checking account. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know how we ever got people to the moon and back safely, given that we got math wrong all these years. But let's start creating short videos, three to five minute videos directed to the parents and let's help them understand how they can help us. Here's Here are the assignments coming out this week. Here are the videos to help you reinforce the message with the children. Having that sort of parent academy and working on that this summer would be the most priceless gift we could give uh, parents just to keep them from pulling their hair out. It's bad enough that our hair is gray and fallen out. You know, we don't need to yank it out at this point.
0: Right. So the whole idea of uh, professional development for faculty all these years, we now need to add in
1: professional development for parents. Yeah, they they are acting as kind of like that de facto teacher aid, and we need to equip them with the tools to succeed just as much. You know, the parent-teacher relationship has to be even more tightened for this upcoming year if we are to avoid an academic slide amongst all of our students. And it doesn't matter the grade level.
0: So that's uh, so that's the short term. Uh, in the long term, does this mean the end of summer vacation?
1: I don't know. The day camp lobbyists are pretty powerful and I would be hard pressed <laughs> to see that any state legislature would ever get up the chutzpah to actually change it.
0: How about the actual physical construction uh, of schools? I mean, Where do you see that uh, changing into maybe when you talk about parents, they almost may become more of a community center than than a school.
1: Well, you know, for most schools, we're not going to have the luxury to rebuild our facilities, and we're not going to have budget to go buy furniture. So probably what we're going to have to see happen in the new year is if we need to reduce um, capacity in our buildings by 50%, or even reduce capacity by 75%, We're going to need to go on an alternate day schedule based on a six-day model, one day at school, one day off school, and then potentially break up the day where, let's say, 7 to 11 a.m. is one cluster of students and 12 to 4 p.m. is another cluster of students. And that's the only way we're going to be able to work it because even if we were to try to create social distancing in our school buildings— where we haven't even begun to realize the financial impact, let alone just the impracticality, is how do we social distance on a school bus? If, I wanted, if I'm if i gonna limit my load capacity to only one child per seat, I now need twice the number of school buses. If I wanna follow the CDC guidelines, which is ideally place one empty row between each two children, I now need to quadruple the number of school buses I need. There is no school system or state that has the budget to go buy that many more school buses and let alone get enough qualified um, CDL drivers to staff them. Wow, this is a sticky wicket. It, it's going to keep getting you know more and more tough. And I wish that there was some clear cut answer. There isn't. But we've got to be creative in this. And more so than ever before, we gotta form ties with our parents in K-12. And in higher ed, we've gotta start thinking of new and more creative ways to partner and create value for our degrees. Because students are sitting there saying, look, a Zoom license costs $14.99 a month. Why am I paying 50,000 in tuition for this? That's gonna become a real question in the minds of a lot of students. And as the parent of two high school juniors who are looking at colleges as we speak, this is a genuine concern in their own heads, not, not from the stance of my pocketbook, but they're thinking as consumers themselves, where are they gonna get the best results for their dollars?
0: Well, can I uh, pester you in a couple months uh, to see where we are? And we can kind of keep a, a, a running tally of uh, hopefully what we see as progress.
1: I would love to come back, and trust me, I'm hoping some of these predictions and realizations are wrong, and that we can have some more degrees of normalcy, but unfortunately, we have to be cautious and plan for all these. And sadly, I think a lot of them are going to start happening.
0: Well, Elliot Levine, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, and and thanks everyone for listening to Remote Possibilities. Appreciate it. Thanks, Kevin. See you next time.